uh, remember I'm gonna try to post it quicker on into the podcast so if anybody misses anything or if some of your friends want to listen to it it should be there uh, um, the idea today is that you know unless there's anything that we need to talk or anybody wants to talk about the last times that we the last five four conversations that we had the four talks if anybody wants to bring anything up again and, and talk about it go ahead right now I think well I actually got something um, and I'm just putting <coughs> this out there I got told today um, I got told today by my chief operations officer so I work at a JCC I got told today that coaches are no longer allowed to do um, organized activities and that includes virtual meetings and zoom calls with their athletes I'm just curious if anybody else has experienced this yet uh, nothing on our behalf. I said it from the beginning. We are not allowed to do anything like that from with our college kids, but that's a ACC and NCAA rule. So that's the hard part with college. Uh, you, you hope you send them something voluntary and you hope that they can do it. Mm -hmm. But the only, the only meetings that we have are we have one meeting a week that we chat about life. You know, we talk about things and movies and try to keep them motivated. The only thing yeah, I'm, I not even, I'm not even allowed to do that anymore. Wow. Yeah, the only thing I can think of, Trevor, is that it, uh, it's a liability issue. Um, mm -hmm. Once USA Swimming said that this wasn't covered, uh, we had to create our own um, waiver. Um, had to get all the parents to sign and all the kids before they were allowed to participate in any of the online stuff. And that's even just suggesting hey why don't you go do this workout why don't you do that workout so that might be what they're looking at okay and anyone else in the same situation no. oh. I'm, I'm not in that situation but this could be something helpful um i run a program called swim strong dryland and i'm not a coach for a lot of the team for any of the teams except for one that i work with and um, so I'm, I have my own like separate waiver that the athletes sign. The coaches can suggest that they continue with their dry land program that they've been doing all year since it's a separate entity from USA Swimming. So if that's a helpful thing, you're more than happy to, to talk to you or, or help with anything so you can get, keep them connected without breaking any rules. All right. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Sean. I think, I think uh, one of the first things that I wrote in the email – that we can talk today if you guys think it's interesting it's about um the importance of dry line and weights in your program and what are your expectations for the weight coach if you have a weight coach a strength and conditioning coach and what what you ask of him or her you know uh and um i can start uh and then hopefully people can follow up um i uh, here at Virginia Tech, I have a strength and conditioning coach uh, that we work together for the weight program. Um, and she's new. She's been, uh, she came this year. She had a little bit of experience with swimming. So the thing that we did is we sat down. We talk, I, I, I explained to her about what I like to do with the dry land, that the dry land is something that I do myself, that I've been doing for 20 plus years. And and what I would like 
to accomplish with the weight uh, for us, for me. I don't want my kids to be big. I want my kids to be able to develop some power, some speed, but I don't want them to be uh, huge, huge and strong, you know? Like, uh, and also very important, I don't want them to be sore after the weight room to a point that they cannot move and they cannot practice or they get cramps, you know? What I asked her, I suggested to her that she's done is because the weight room and the pool are kind of far apart. So I asked her to come to our dryland program to watch our dryland in the mornings because in the mornings, Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, we do uh, dryland conditioning with medicine balls, with a stretch course, and it can last anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. And uh, many times the strength and conditioning coach that hasn't seen our program is in the weight room is doing other things that don't complement anymore, but add to what we did. So the kids end up coming to practice and they can barely walk. Like our first year at VT, I had, I think the day that I had the most was 17 kids. They had to leave practice because of cramps, you know? Uh, so that was pretty hard. So this year we haven't had that. So we, we've been able to, you know, to work together. Um, we do the first five weeks of the season all together and mainly to teach the freshmen how to understand movements and some of them don't have experience lifting and more than anything to, to work as a team. And, and so they understand how the, the weight room works. And after five weeks, they, they start doing a little bit more specific work. Uh, the goal is not to bulk up, just to be able to complement the athlete to swim fast. Doesn't matter if it's a sprinter or it's a distance swimmer. Uh, our dryland and we lift weights all the way until four and a half, five weeks before the big meet. Uh, and then we stop. Uh, some people, because psychologically they like to feel certain things, might get in the weight room, but I like to stop four to five weeks before. My first year at VT, because everybody was getting so sore, um, I stopped uh, the weight room sometime in December. So pretty much almost two months before the big meet. And we had, we broke the school record in the sprint events and we had five guys in the distance events going from 14, uh, 50 something to 15, 17, you know, so five guys. So we, I'm not saying it was perfect, but we performed pretty well. Um, uh, you know, it's very hard for me to have a strength and conditioning coach because I, I'm kind of a control freak in that sense. Not that I know more than them because I don't, but I know what, what I know and that works for me. But, but so far has been, the people that I've worked here has been uh, really good at, trying to teach me things and try to understand what we do. So um, our dryland, we go three times a week too, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Our weights, we go three times a week, the first five weeks, and then we go only two times a week. And, and we stop probably three and a half weeks, four weeks before the meet. And the last three weeks, I give them maybe once a week or twice a week, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of choice. And some of them use the medicine ball, some of them some plyometrics, but it's their choice. So more or less, that would be 
in a nutshell what I, I do. I think, um, oops, there we go. Uh, I mean, I agree with you. You got to work pretty closely with with the dryland coach because you don't always have you don't always have the choice of who you get to pick for your dryland coach um, within our club program. <coughs> um, just trying to find somebody who will spend an extra hour or two hours um, each day working with the kids. You know, we got a guy who knew nothing about swimming, so there was a lot of education. We invited him down to watch swimming gave them books on swimming to help them understand um, just the movement patterns and, and the different things that uh, swimming required. And then, you know, we sat down and kind of put together dry land that we would do and let him kind of adapt to it um, as far as the movements and stuff. Um, and it's amazing what, you know, he's learned, but also what we've learned from his perspective of what he's seen. Awesome. Sergio, no. this is Dale. Um, when you uh, dropped off the dry land and weights, uh, when did the meditation pick up and did it go into that time slot or did it go into the practice to, to reduce the time at the pool? Well, no, like normally we only have 20 hours a week, you know, in, in college. And, you know, when I was at Bulls, I had planned 26 hours of practice. So I had more freedom. Not that we would do 26 hours, but... A, a college will only have 20 hours. And I can assure you, I have proof that this year and every year, but I haven't gone over 20 hours. I don't like to do that. I think to me, they're student athletes and, and I, I figured out a system to do my meetings, my conditioning, my driving, my swimming in less than 20 hours. So we've gone anywhere between 17 and a half to 19 and a half hours a week, you know, and, and, and that's part of it. Uh, I don't do, I don't take the weights to put the meditation. I, I just, the meditation probably, you know, depends on the season. But next year I'm going to start from day one teaching them uh, because every year, my first year I wanted to put things slowly. The second year, some more things. But probably at some point in December, we start three or four times a week, uh, 10 minutes before practice. We do and sometimes we do it before the dry land, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You know, we have a big gym, kind of like a gymnastics arena, not arena, like room, with all the, the, the bouncy floors and all that stuff. So it's very nice to, to be able to, sleep, to lay down there. But it doesn't have to conflict with, with the dry land whatsoever. Hey, Sergio, I got a question for you. Yes, sir. So um, you're talking about, um, you know, all the different stuff. Like, do you differ um, pro weight programs and dry land programs for athletes depending on what they swim? Like, would, like for a distance swimmer, would you try to, um, you know, would you try to do more reps of a lighter weight versus a little heavier weight for a sprinter or something like that? Uh when I was at Bowles, we didn't really do weights until they were 18 or they were going to go to college. So, and we try a couple circuits and things, but uh, I'm not a proponent of doing weights until they go to college, <coughs> at least in America, you know, because, because I believe that, that in college, 
when they go into college, the first thing they do, they put them in the weight room, you know? Yeah. And so, but to me, I, I coach the distance and that, I don't know, in the weight room, we talk with the, the strength and conditioning coach, but they do pretty much the same most of the time until the last few weeks, probably, you know, um, we don't really dif- differentiate too much. I don't, you know, as long as she understands my guidelines and she sees what we do and they, she has a distance group and a sprint group and she writes two different practices, uh, two different sets of weights. The difference is not that much. Might be more, the exercises are the same, but, be, but might be more on, the, the sprinters might be more doing less reps, higher uh, weight than the distance. But pretty much the concept is the same because mm-hmm. we have to work together too. We have two hours, one hour for the men's team and one hour for the women's team. So we have 30 something here and 30 something there. So we have a very nice weight room. We're lucky, but still you have 30 something people in there. You know, so you have to create a good team dynamics. That that's also very important. Like for me, for example, I never lifted weights when I was an athlete. Uh, maybe a little bit before I came to America, but very very simple. And uh, in nineteen, like a year or two before I retire, I had my own coach. There was a friend of mine, so because I wanted to learn how to coach while I was a professional swimmer, and. I met this, I was in, in Spain and I met this Shaput coach from, from Russia. And he, he gave me, he told my coach and me, he explained what they do with the Shaputers and the javelin. This is in 1990s. Eh? And at that point, they were breaking world records and world records and world records. And you could ask if the system is, if there's more to the system of weights than that. But, um, but I took that system and i implemented it with my swimmers and when i was at northwestern university we didn't have sprinters and and bob grosset asked me we need to have somebody for the relay and we got one of our distance guys to be in the 400 free relay and split a 43 you know now what we do is like the, the last four weeks of the process and this is what i explained that i would like this something like this to happen with my swimmers the last four weeks we only do four exercises, you know, depending on mm-hmm. the stroke. But let's say for a breaststroker, you'll do a bench press, a squat, uh, a straight down for the pullout, and a leg press, you know. Mm-hmm. And what you do the first week, and, and, and you do three reps at 95%, at 90% effort. Right? After every rep, right? After the three reps, you got to do, um, like, for example, let's say that you do a squat. You do three reps at, at 90%, and after that, you do five squats and jumps as fast as you can. Right? So then you rest a couple minutes. Right? And then you go, and, and, and you do that two times. I don't remember exactly, but, and then you go, the next one is going to be two times at a 90%, at a 95% effort. Mm-hmm. Right? two reps and then you do five squats and jumps as fast as you can and then you do one rep at 100 percent, five squats and jumps one rep at 100 percent, five squats and jumps so you only do four four times that right four four sets of each exercise but it really attacks your nervous system right so what you do the next week you start two reps at a 90 one rep at 100 one rep at 100 and one rep at 100 always with something 
explosive and plastic right behind. Right? So if you do a bench press, for example, you mm -hmm. do uh, two reps at a 95, boom, boom, and then right away, you stand in front of a wall with a medicine ball and you do a jump and, and throw the ball and catch and, and you know, five times, pam, 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 with a good jump. And um, this third week, you do the first one is one rep at 100, the second one, one rep at 100, the third one, one rep at 110%, and the fourth one, one rep at 100. And the same thing, something explosive. The fourth week is the last week, you do one rep at 100%, one rep at 110, one rep at 120, and then one rep at 100%. Now, the explanation, uh, even at 100%, it's very hard. Right? Uh, the goal is not just the rep itself. It's the isometric time that you're going to spend trying to move that. Like, for example, if I do a squat at 110%, you know, it's impossible for me to be able to lift it. So when I go down and I try to push, I have three spotters normally. I always want three spotters, one in one side, one in the other side, and one in the back trying to hold me. So whenever I cannot move anymore, they have to hold me there for six to 10 seconds. And they hold me there. And that isometric movement that I'm like over there, like in a squat position for six to 10 seconds. And after that, they pull it up and then I jump right away. That's when I gain a lot of explosivity. And, and quickness make sense yeah but, makes sense wow but but that really attacks the nervous system and it gets you exhausted it's really so it like the four exercises will take you an hour and a half at least to do it from there we go straight into the water uh, with a warm-up so you don't do any warm-up in the water and we'll do 425 from a dive two with high tempo as fast as you can and two with applying as much power as you can with good stroke but fast and it's amazing how fast people go the first two the first two people are really they don't know what they're doing because honestly their nervous system even if it's half hour later because they have to come from the the, the weight room their brain their body it's so confused but they just they just move so fast and there's a very good adaptation of that. And to me, to be able to recover from that, you have a, you need at least four weeks to, to, to have a gain, you know. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a physiologist. I, I've done it with people like Mark Rivers when he was at Northwestern, with many, many athletes, and it works. So. Yeah, just kind of um, no, back awesome. to work. Thank you. Back to what you, had, what you had said, Sergio, about weights for, you know, the club. I know, you know, before you left Bulls, we kind of started going, taking them into the weight room, not so much to lift and get big, but just to educate them because we knew a lot of them were going to go to schools that didn't have a strong strength and conditioning program, and we didn't want our kids getting hurt. Um, so we did a lot of just kind of, you know, learning how to lift, learning how to be in the weight room properly. Um, and I thought that was, that was a huge, huge thing for us. Thanks, John. I mean, we have a lot of coaches here. Nobody wants to share how you... <clears throat> uh, Sergio, yeah. Uh, um, Sergio, yeah, from a club program, um, 
just talking about finding a good strength and conditioning coach has always been a challenge because um, you want to try and uh, find someone that has uh, or that is has no ego, you know, because it's a big challenge from a coaching perspective uh, to get the strength and conditioning coach to understand that um, <clears throat> as that. 90% of the work is being performed in the water. So the results need to be maximized in the pool, you know. So a lot of the times our challenges as coaches is trying to relay that information. I find good communication and obviously meeting with the strength and conditioning coaches. One of the other coaches mentioned earlier on uh, makes a huge difference. Um, I've always run my own programs. Um, we are not in a club-based program. We haven't had the luxury to have a strength and conditioning coach. Um, Sometimes when you do find one, it's, uh, it's definitely a blessing. Um, but we also periodize very similar to what you're suggesting. We stick to compound movements. Um, the athlete's age is obviously relevant. Sometimes it's uh, maturation age. So physically, they might be a lot older than what they are. <clears throat> and all of these things uh, need to be done on an individual basis. It's usually how we work. Our dryland program generally must complement and how we used to work at it and when I was with Graham we used to do the same we would try and see the strengths and weaknesses and so a lot of the times if I was dealing with a, a swimmer who was a little bit more distance based maybe um, a little bit more slow twitch orientated we would try and fix that in on dry land <clears throat> we'd often want to try and make swimmers uh, before they swim as actually athletes. So that's kind of always been our approach. And I'm sure a lot of the coaches will share that uh, sentiment as well. Thanks, Dylan. You know, I know uh, I had a, a really bad experience at West Virginia University with a strength and conditioning coach. Um, and at one point I had to go up to my athletic director and told him that either you let me do what I need to do or I need to go somewhere else. Because the strength and conditioning coach was the guy, the head coach, the head, the head of the strength and conditioning program, but he was mainly with the football team, and he would write a program on his computer that he thought was excellent, but he never saw our swimmers, and he would give that program to a graduate assistant. That when I asked him to show me the breaststroke stroke or whatever it is, he had no f clue about what we were doing. So, so I had to I had to fight this guy for a long time because my swimmers would come out of the weight room and so, uh, the, first, the first few months, they could barely walk into the pool. And they could come, the, the weight room was right next to the pool and they couldn't do anything. And this guy thought, I had these arguments with this guy about, even though I told him that I wanted to learn from him, but that he needed to trust me because at the end of the day, if the team doesn't swim well, he's not gonna lose his job, I'm gonna lose mine. Uh, you know. He thought that he took it personally. Wow, you know, what do you think? I'm not a good coach and da-da-da-da. And what are you going to teach me about strength and conditioning and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's, there's some big egos out there uh, that you have to be careful. You really have to be careful. I think that's a really good point. I think so. I'm a strength and conditioning coach myself. And the um, but everything I do is swim specific. I, the, I work with a handful of coaches around the country and the biggest thing that I aim to do is to reinforce the goals and the um, values that they have. Everything, all the programming is built around their 
season. And so it's like every single week I'm in contact with the coaches and talking about um, what, what's the season plan? What's the goal? What's the taper meet we're going for? How are the athletes feeling? Check-ins. Um, I coach them on nutrition, mindset, leadership, all those different things. But if you don't have a strength and conditioning coach who's on board with understanding that dry land is a supplement to the main thing being the swimming, which is how you're going to become the greatest swimmer. You're, you're going to, you're going to struggle, but also having someone who, um, so what I do is I write all the programs for the coaches because every, every age is going to be different. And I do all the exercise science and physiology and stuff. I can do all that thinking I hand them the programs and I coach the coaches to coach them. So they don't have to pay all the money to hire a strength and conditioning coach full time on their staff. Um, but they get all of the same resources and I um, reinforce the culture that they're trying to create. And so when you guys are asking questions about like, you know, specificity for different groups, those are really great questions. Like, you know, when you're 18 and under, and I think Sergio alluded to this, you don't want to, you don't want to become too specific. Like you don't want to call someone a, a sprinter or a middle distance swimmer or an endurance swimmer, and then start training them in dry land in those specific ways, because then you'll miss out on developing their full, athletic potential so if you see someone's better at sprint events and you just start training them to be a sprinter and doing sprint work with dry land before they get to college they're going to be a worse sprinter and because they're still developing there's so many things that are developing in their nervous system and in their body um, that that you'll limit their athletic potential so it's just there's so many things that it's hard to know everything as a swim coach on the physiology side of things um, that you shouldn't you know, necessarily have to worry about, but you also shouldn't have to fight somebody who's, you know, not reinforcing the same culture you have or, or pay a fortune to get it. So, um, but, you know, I think you guys are asking the right questions. And um, anyway, if you have any questions on that stuff, I'm happy to, that's what I do all the time. So I'm happy to help with any of that. Thanks, Eric. Uh, you know, it's very hard for, for most coaches to have a strength and conditioning coach for most clubs. And, you know, so I think, uh, but yeah, th thanks a lot. A anybody else has anything? Uh, hold on. Little ones. Um, I wonder, you know, if there's any of the age coaches over there. I, like I said before, I'm the 10 and under coach, you know, and, and I always try to work with my kids 15 to 20 minutes on dry land. You know, I am big on, on attacking certain parts of the body. I find out with my little ones, you know, that they're very core, you know, that they have no strength in their core. So I try to always work with the core. I will have like a one day that I do try to do legs. You know, I don't use any weights, only their own weight. But I try to work on exercises on legs. And another day I try to work a lot more, you know, in movement, you know, on how to do jumps and movement that they can have to make them a little bit explosive. And then I try to work uh, a lot in the core. I mean, I find out that uh, when they get stronger, you know, with, the, with those exercises, I start to see a little bit of change in, the, in their swimming, especially in the fly, you know. So if anybody has any, any feedback on the age groups, uh, you know, I will appreciate that. Awesome. Thanks, Gina. Um, so we actually do dry, we're, we're actually using this time to roll out a age group level dry land program that is not based on weights. We don't do any weights really with any of our groups. We talk a lot about body balance work and really trying to get movement. Um, we have a strength coach on staff. And we also have a consultant that we work with to kind of create like a wholesale dry land program um, that starts at the very beginning so that we're working towards injury prevention long term so that when they do get to college, they're able to 
take that strength programming and go to the next level with it um, so that they can kind of level up. They get introduced to the weight room, but we're talking about movement and uh, very specific movement, especially like learning how to balance on one leg, learning how to um, do a proper push-up, do a proper squat, do a proper sit-up. So very basic motions that we can then when we go back to the pool at the end of all this, we're going to be able to comp have that complement what we're doing in the pool when we get back in. Um, and we just started that with our 10 and unders um, three weeks ago. And it's been great. Like they've actually really loved it. And it's really, you know, we use it as a time to get them together. So um, yeah, it's been pretty cool. So I, 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 I think that, you know, staying off weights, I didn't start lifting weights personally until I was 16. I think you can start a little earlier with women than you can with men because their growth is a little bit different. Um, but our, our ladies are pretty excited about lifting and my team likes lifting. So that's something that we try to make sure we're teaching the correct movements before they even enter the weight room so that when they get to that college level, they can really benefit a lot from that college weightlifting structure. So, but, but we start that at age 10 and we're using this time to do that now. So that's kind of fun. Thank awesome. you, Alex. Thank you very much, Alex. Mm -hmm. So, uh, hey, Sergio. Um, hi, hi Sergio. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. How are you? Good, good. Great. Um, I think I think pretty much everybody uh, is working on basically um, a, a very similar approach. Um, what I found really useful, uh, especially uh, starting with my uh, age group kids, you know, like 13, 14 year olds, is um, on every Saturday, instead of uh, doing another extra session of Tryland, I incorporated Pilates into, into the equation. And um, it, was, it was really helpful as far as, uh, you know, uh, core conditioning and then their, their flexibility is... Um, is concerned and uh, we used to do that after a pretty you know hard session on Saturday morning and then we go during uh, during Saturday I think around lunchtime uh, right after practice and do uh, a Pilates session and uh, it, it had a great difference and a great um, improvement in in kids ages you know 14 to guys that I have that are 27 20 years old um, and, uh, I was a little skeptical at the beginning, uh, you know, you know, we all are, uh, when something new comes up, but, um, I was very, uh, surprised and very, um, uh, pleasantly surprised with the, with the approach. And, um, also when you said that you take your athletes off weights, uh, around four weeks, um, before the big meet. Um, I did that for a while, and especially with uh, with women, uh, we had some um, we had some trouble of, of them holding holding the strength and the power towards uh, towards the meat. And uh, for the last four or five years, uh, I was uh, we, I mean we were pretty successful. We had girls that actually lifted up to like five days or four days before the meet. So I wanted to ask you know everybody else's opinion on that. Thank you. Thank you, Stavis. Um, I'd like to add, yes, I, I've had a similar experience with uh, some swimmers. We've lifted up until about four or five days on the meet. Um, I found the, the women and the leaner men uh, seem to be better at that. They seem to need to retain some sort of feel of uh, 
strength going into a meet. Um, cutting it too short uh, seems to take that feel away, um, power or whatever you want to call it. Uh, with my slightly more muscular individuals, uh, a three to four week taper to get full benefit has definitely been beneficial to me as well. So I've used both methods. Thanks, Dylan. I know at one point in talking to uh, Ryan Murphy, he was telling us one year, I think it was his senior year of college, of college swimming, that um, they were looking at actually lifting at NC2As, not heavy or anything, but just kind of going into a weight room. And like you said, some people just like that feel, that pressure right there. Uh, I mean, he obviously swam pretty well. Um, unfortunately, I never got to talk to him after it to see how he liked it. But I know that was something that, um, that Berkeley was looking at because <clears throat> um, they had done it their mid-season meet. And Ryan and a bunch of others said that they did like it. Uh, so they were supposed to try it at NC2As. But I thought it was interesting. I think it's always up to the person at that point because it is psychological the last couple of weeks. I think I – think for the older ones, um, I, I had some of my top guys, they even at the Olympics, they lived a few days before, you know, because they like that. So it's like you, you adapt to every swimmer, you know, like Dylan said, and, you know, Stravos, uh, you want to you wanna make sure that you don't have a system for everybody. You know, uh, my, my no. thought is I, I start tapering four or five weeks before, and then, then out of 70 people in the team, you have case by case. You know, you know, I know last year, for example, I had a, a guy that he was very skeptical uh, about, he, about, he's very smart. He, he was a walk-on at Virginia Tech and he, he was the record holder by the time he was a junior in the 53, he was 19.3. His best in long course was 22.7. And I was telling him that he didn't need to lift anymore, blah, 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 blah. But he was very skeptical. And, um, but long story short, after NC2As, he went to a meet and went 22-1 in long course. Missed the Olympic cut for his country by one-tenth of a second. And after the meet, he came up to me because that was the 10th week. 10th week of him not lifting weights. He came up to me. It's like, you know, Sergio, maybe you have some sort of... Maybe you're a little right with the fact that I needed to drop weights earlier. You know, because at the, at, the, at the ACC meet, he didn't... He, he, he didn't swim that fast in the 50. He dropped a lot in the 100. But in the 50, he didn't swim as fast. But I, I think it was more of a mental thing than anything else. So it all depends. You know, then I have some of the, of the other guys like Renzo, a guy from Suriname. That he's 22-2 or 22-1. He, he likes to lift until three days or four days before his meet. So I think you, as a coach, you play by ear with each one of them. I just have a, an idea of when I want to stop, and then Absolutely. you play with each swimmer. You know? um, uh, one of the coaches uh, asked me uh, uh, if we have any, anybody uses boxing and uh, if we have any opinion about boxing, do, using boxing. I know now you see a lot of videos of people doing boxing and all that. Uh, I'll tell you that I started boxing, I think, around 10 years ago. And I was at Bulls. And don't ask me how. Don't ask me why. I think it's good. The only thing that uh, physiologically, because I'm not like a strength and conditioning coach, but what I like about boxing 
when I implemented in my, in my practice that I do shadow boxing or boxing with partners with, uh, I like the connection between the hand, uh, whatever the hand speed that they do, it's not so much about power, the hand speed and, and whatever is happening within the brain and the hands and right away apply it in the water. It's pretty impressive, the gains that they have, you know, and you can, you, we only do three exercises that one of the, they're very similar to when you swim, one is high elbows. So you do is like shoulder driven swimming. You know, that's a lot that uh, uh, coach, uh, what's his name? Mike Bottom did for a long time. The other one is uppercuts, you know, so we, you, can, you can throw your punch up and then you can use your core and your obliques. And, you know, very similar to when you swim more hip driven. And the other one will be bob and whip when you do have a squat and move to the side. So I like boxing a lot. We've been using it for a long time. And I see a lot of gains. I don't know other people if they use it or not. Uh, or maybe Eric can explain why, if there's any gains on that in a more scientific way. Well, so I'll, I'll jump. I'll jump in. Go ahead. Um, so, for my older guys, I've tried boxing as well as kickboxing, and they seem to just enjoy it. It's something different. Um, it definitely gets them sweating. And, and like you said, Sergio, the hand-eye coordination as well as helps with the with the shoulder and driving their bodies forward, it really helps. Um, for my younger guys, kind of what you were saying, Stravis, um, something that I did is not necessarily Pilates, but actually more, more on the gymnastic side because um, it really, really helps, especially with the younger kids with body balance and um coordination like if you can get a little kid balancing on a balance beam their streamlines get 10 times better i don't know why it just it just happens <laughs> thanks um I, I like the boxing um ever since sergio started using it at bulls i've i've kept it um i think in addition to you know understanding the connectivity with the hips and the shoulders and everything else he explained i like um, you know, when you can get them moving at a little bit quicker speed and just kind of teaching hand speed. I mean, a lot of these kids are using, you know, the only speed they have is thumb speed when they're playing their video games and just trying to move a part of their body in a controlled but fast motion uh, for more than two or three seconds can sometimes be difficult. And so just kind of watching as they got better at the boxing, you started to see that better hand speed, better coordination in the water. Um, so I've always kept it. Thanks. Yeah, Sergio, I've been uh, I've been using uh, boxing as well since uh, 2003, 2004. When uh, I was with the race club down in Isla Morada with Gary Hall and them guys, and, uh, and uh, we incorporated boxing into into our training, uh, boxing with a lot of um, incorporated boxing for the age group kids as well. Um, my only problem with it is when kids get too excited and then they start pounding on the on the mitts and everything. And we had a couple of uh, wrist uh, problems, uh, but apart from that, it works great with the uh, connectivity um, and uh, it, it basically awakens up the nervous system. And it's uh, it's always something fun for the kids to do. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's been working great since then. Awesome. Thanks. 
Uh, I would just add one thing. Like we in the boxing, uh, I did it with Sergio down at bowls as well. And, uh, at Delaware now we've been utilizing a lot. Um, one thing that I really try to encourage the kids to also focus on is their breathing while they do this. So as they really get going at high speeds, the connection, you know, from their core to their hands, um, but then also paying attention to how they're breathing during all this, I found really translates well once they get into the water of, okay, I'm having to move really, really fast, concentrate on this accuracy, but then also how am I breathing? You know, making sure they're not having that real shallow breath, but doing it at a specific time and getting into a really tight routine um, has translated very well. Thanks, Mike. I think um, I love the things that you guys are saying boxing wise. It's, it's a great way to train um, because a different modality for them to experience getting mind body connection and developing the nervous system. And so when you do something with boxing, your core strength is really important, obviously in swimming. And the, one of the main purposes of your core is to be able to stay stable. So you can have an effective transfer of energy, right? From your, from your, from your hand all the way down to your toe. And if you don't have a stable core, the energy transfer is not going to be as good. And you're always using every single muscle in your body. It's a full body functional movement. So something like boxing where you're using rotational power and you need one muscle, you know, your muscles start in your lower body transfer through your core all the way to your upper body. It's great for core stability and rotational power. Um, and just getting that mind body connection of if I activate these muscles, I'm going to be stronger with, you know, the final product. And so anyway, I, lo I love the things that you were bringing up there, Sergio. Thanks. Is uh, confidence they get mentally when they've um, been boxing, kickboxing for a period of time, they all of a sudden think they're killers and they can rock up to a race. And they've got another level of mental confidence, which is something I see. And especially the shy ones coming through that work hard, they work hard at boxing, they feel really confident at the end. So that's cool. Thanks, Andy. I, I really agree that one of the things that I have to, I always remind the kids because sometimes they pound, they pound the mints too hard. You know, mm -hmm. they, they hit, they hit, and hit. And it's not so hard about how hard you hit. It's about movement, speed, you know. And it's just like, you know, so we have to slow them down. Because, you know, when you have, even girls, but when you have 30 guys paired together with gloves and mints, the thing that they want to do is be faster than the other one, how many more repetitions they can do, and how hard you can hear when I punch, you know, and, and we have to, we have to be careful with all that. That's a, that's a very important thing that you have to, uh, you know, calm them down, you know, like, and, and also show them the, the right form. I don't, you know, I'm not very coordinated, but sometimes I watch these kids box or even do shadow boxing. And it's like, it's like if they're running away, trying to, to scare flies, you know, and it's a very, uh, it, it, you have to teach them how not to be self-conscious in front of everybody. That's a very big part of it. And just move the way you can move. Because if you just do it and just allow them to do whatever they want, some kids are going to thrive and some other kids are going to waste their time because they're self-conscious about their image and how they look. And they don't feel that they can do it better than somebody else. That's a, that's a big, big, big thing. Uh, Sergio, um, I wasn't a believer in uh, boxing or kickboxing. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to spend some time in, um, in Oz in uh, 2010 with uh, coach Matt Brown, who was Emily Seabom's coach at the time. And 
one of the ways he used kickboxing for her was, um, and I actually w I watched the whole session, um, his threshold work, what he then termed his threshold work, is what she hated to do. And he would just bring in a kickboxing guy and she would hit the pads and the bag for like 40 minutes to, to an hour. And he said, well, he just had to find other ways of trying to stimulate that energy system for her in, able, in order for her to get that work done. And this was one of the ways. And then afterwards, she would get in the water and, and do some sprint sessions. So since 2010, I've been using it. Um, I do enjoy it. Um, I, I combine it as part of my dry land, and I find it really, it's really helpful in, in terms of the kids love it. They love doing it. Um, I don't go too young with it because, um, you know, when you put gloves on, on kids, they tend to want to not only hit the pads, but hit themselves, you know, and hit each other and um, it can get carried away a little bit. But um, generally with my older kids, I love it. It's a, it's a great way to transition from my dry land directly into the pool work. And so I'd have my guys hit focus pads. Uh, we do pretty much what you'd say i'd have i'd throw very basic combinations uppercut work i love because it, it engages a lot of core work a lot of uh movement orientated stuff uh, and it's really coordinated so pretty much uh some of that stuff uh i, I really enjoy doing and bringing in as part of my complete trial and program and vary it throughout the season so they're not just doing say for example if we're just doing med balls i try and break it up so that it becomes interesting and we would try and change it up uh, depending on where we are in the season. That's awesome. Thanks. Like like you said, for Emily Seaborn, that that was a big part of her conditioning. Like, I know my conditioning. When we do three times a week for an hour, we, when we do the same session, we're going to do medicine ball, we're going to do 40 pros, we're going to do, like, boxing. That's that's a huge part of, like, their their threshold work and their aerobic work and certain part of work that it's going to pay off in the water later on. You know, that, you know, I know, I remember when I got to, I became an assistant at Auburn, I was writing the practices for the, my first year for every group until the last few weeks for the sprinters. But one of the sessions, Brett Hawk asked me, he said, hey, Sergio, so when are we going to start tapering? And I said, well, we need to probably start five weeks before the ACC meet. And he got scared. He was like, oh, no, Sergio, no, 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 no. This is five weeks is too much. You know, I think we should do probably three, three weeks and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So he's my boss. So we did three weeks and we swam pretty well at ACCs. But a week later at the Georgia last chance meet, <laughs> we had eight swimmers qualify for NC2As and swim much faster you know, because they had one more week of, of rest. And then one of the things that he told me later on, he said, you know, Sergio, we went to NC2As and we swam pretty well. He was very impressed of the dry land work that we did, how we would carry through the season. And we could have a second taper or a third taper, and we could swim pretty well. And I, I think that's, that's part of the conditioning that we have outside of the water. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's a good thing. Uh, Gordon Glasgow, he asked, you want to ask a question that you, you posted in the chat? Yeah, sure. Um, I think listening to everybody, there's a, there's a lot of different ideas flying around, but I think one of the things, and probably something um, that, that Eric might want to jump in on, the, the, the modality seems almost, for want of a better phrase, almost irrelevant um, in comparison to the consistency of it. I think 
potentially just what you suggested there, if they're doing something for that length of time at that kind of intensity all the way through, not just season, but year upon year upon year, um, the development of some, you know, of, of some kind of capacity um, shines through. Um, and I think having been around a number of programs and been on deck watching a number of programs where success has come out of entirely different um, dry land protocols and either lifting or not lifting, um, what I have seen is that it's that consistency and that capacity and capability to take that as close to race day as possible. You know, as you say, you can taper five, seven, ten weeks out if your dry land is is, is keeping that condition. Eric, you want to jump into this? Or? Sure. Um, no, that's a really great thought process. And a question, I think consistency is always going to be the key. Um, with dry land, there's so many different things that you can do. I think the two most important things you could do, especially, I mean, at every level, but especially at the club level, is someone mentioned um, training age before. It's recognizing someone's training age. You might have a 15-year-old who, you know, has the – they're 15 years old biologically, but training wise, they can only do movements that a 10 year old can do because they're not super coordinated and they need to not do what the other 15 year olds on the team are doing. So I th think the biggest thing there is just making sure their technique and their movement patterns are correct. So you can do, there's so many different things you can do, but if their movement patterns and their technique are correct and they're doing things that you do want to make sure they're doing things that are different from what they're doing in the water. Cause if you're just constantly doing swim specific exercises again you're going to limit their their athletic ability and you need to, uh, to help make them a better athlete and to prevent injury you need to make sure that you're counteracting and counterbalancing the movements you're doing in the pool um, so as far as like modalities go you do want to uh, mix it up outside the water to make sure you're creating a good overall athlete but when it comes to the success you're going to find it's doing things correctly um, having efficient movement patterns and then consistently and slowly building on that and um, but yeah, you're going to see a lot of, just like in swimming, I mean, there's so many different ways to get to the same point and every individual athlete is going to be different. Um, so if you can get them to be consistent and efficient with their movement patterns, you're going to be, you know, ahead of the game. Awesome. Just, just maybe following up on that um, question is we, we do spend a lot of time preparing them to lift, um, but there's not an awful lot of evidence to suggest that lifting itself has any real beneficial impact on swim speed. Although some of the fastest people in the world do lift. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Is, is... I, I, I tell you one thing. Uh, uh, sorry, Eric. Just, just, um, I, don't, I think lifting is important, but it's unnecessary. I don't know if that makes sense. You know? um, I've seen it with, I never lifted weights. You know, and I was top two in the world. So you can say, well, uh, you know, but I didn't lift weights. And I was ranked in the world in the top 20 in many events, you know. Um, and I've seen it, like, for example, Marcello Cigarini, one of our guys, like, um, they, they, that I coached for, for a couple of years when I was at Auburn. In 2017, he split, what, 46-6 in the 400 Fivilla for Brazil. They got second right behind the US. That year that he trained with me, I pulled him out of the weight room for the upper body because he was too big. 
at the beginning, he couldn't understand it. He said, like, Marcelo, you have a beautiful stroke, but you cannot finish the race. The most important thing is how you can apply the power that you have. Marcelo is the type of guy that gets in the weight room and lifts one weight and he gets big. He just gets huge. You know, and he went 46.6, I think 46.68 in the 100 freestyle in Marcos. You know, if you think about that, I don't think he's done that again. I think last year he, he swam 47 something. And, you know, um, I had another swimmer, Shane Ryan. That he trains now in Ireland. That he came to train with us. He was 40, 49, 6 the year before in the 100 freestyle. And six months or seven months later, without lifting really weights and trying to change things, he went 48, 6. And then he's gone back to Ireland. He's been lifting very heavy. And I think last year his best time was 49 something. And I'm not saying that they're doing something wrong. I'm just saying that sometimes you're too strong for your own good. If you cannot apply that, and you know, and sometimes you can forget the weights because you're not a weightlifter. That's my opinion. I think, I think, Sergio, it all comes down to what you just said. Um, that if you can't apply the uh, the force and the power in the water, you know, that you gain from lifting weights or whatever uh, kind of dryland program you're doing outside the water, um, then uh, it, it's even better if you stop doing it. Um, when I was still swimming, I swam till I was 36 and I was still swimming close to my best times when I was 36. And, uh, in the summertime, especially, you know, I live on an Island. So we, I used to play beach volleyball, uh, from April till August. And that, that was during the competition months. Right. And I never lifted any weights during those months just by, you know, just by playing beach volleyball and just, you know, getting all that power and all that speed and all that quickness on the sand, that translated well into, into the swimming pool. But, you know, everything, as you mentioned earlier, it has to be uh, custom made for each athlete, right? And um, we have to keep things interesting, especially if we're coaching older people and, you know, sprinters, let's say. So... You know, I mean, there's no, there's no right or no wrong way to do it. It's just what, what fits. Yeah, I think it's different for each individual athlete. And, you know, what Sergio, what you were saying is correct for a lot of people. If they are, the, the goal of, I think people confuse lifting and dry land sometimes and use them as separate things. I put like dry land into the category of anything resistance training. But the goal of dry land is to make you a better, more efficient, more powerful swimmer um, and to keep you safe in the water. So if someone is so big and so strong that you then start to limit their mobility, well, then they're going to have significantly uh, less solid body mechanics and less torque that they can apply to, um, to each stroke. And it is going to be more ineffective for, you know, there's not many people where that's the case that they're, you know, so, but there are some people like that. And but obviously increased strength is going to increase your distance per stroke, your power off the blocks, off the walls, but working on, you know, core work, stability, mobility, those types of things, those are all dry land too and work specifically to um, improving your swimming is the, the goal at the end of the day. But, but, but every individual athlete is going to be different. And so there's no one right prescription from one athlete to the other, but you could be an incredible swimmer as Sergio mentioned without throwing up heavy weights or needing to do anything like that. And you could also be someone 
who that's a huge part of your success. Um, but it, it really does depend. And, and every athlete is a little bit different. And um, I actually have to jump off. I'll put my email on the chat here. I have another call, but thanks so much for setting this up, Sergio. I really, really love these calls. You're welcome, Eric. Thanks. I, one thing that I want to I share with you guys, uh, and the, the, for me, my, the medicine ball system, uh, program that I have that I've done for 20 plus years as a coach, and then I did it as an athlete with Joseph Nagy, it is, it is most important is for prevention. It's for working the muscles that you don't work in the water, but they're supportive muscles for the ones that you do. Make sense? And I can assure you, and John can tell you that, because John was at Bolts before I got there. They had a lot of shoulder injuries in the past, and we didn't have almost any shoulder injuries in the seven and a half years that I was there. The same thing has happened with my teams that I've coached, because a lot of it, you know, if you have somebody with an injury that is not very hard, very defined, but in a very bad stage, many of them recover pretty well because the way you work with the medicine ball, unless you're the type of coach, they allow the swimmers because today they're using six pounds and they do it very well. And a month later, they're going to be using 20 pounds. That's idiotic. You know, you don't need to use more pounds, you know. You just need to learn how to move, how to throw, how to catch, how to, how to, you know. And for me, that's a huge part of the training. It's prevention, yeah. you know, and help them out to be like a good block, not block, but a good, to have a good foundation so they don't, they don't break down when we train. And then you, by uh, byproducts of that, better conditioning, you know, better uh, hand-eye coordination, you know, they can use the, they learn how to use their forearms better that you use a lot when you swim. You know, they, they learn how to be a little bit more, uh, more pl uh, pliable, a, a lot of that. But mainly it's, you know, working the muscles that you don't work when you swim, that they're preventing, they, they will prevent injuries. Um, so, Joe, I, I just wanted to add to that. I, I, I think. Uh, it's important. Eric mentioned some good points there, which I thought were really good. Uh, the first point being that he didn't differentiate too much between dry land and the weight room. And I think any form of resistance training is resistance training. So, you know, I know with uh, Chad uh, going into London, uh, Chad was 20 at the time. And uh, this, he never did any, any, any weights at all up until that age. Uh, I know that he's doing some weight training now. But up until that point, um, he was only doing the medicine ball top dry land workouts uh, two to three times a week. Um, so I think uh, it's definitely a um, horses for courses scenario. Some, some swimmers uh, do tend to go onto the weights at a later age. I think the coaches or the athletes is looking for an edge. Uh, maybe when the swimmer gets to 22 or 23, and now they're trying to add something, or maybe 20 or 21, depending on the maturation of the athlete, is they're trying to get something, you know, a little bit extra. So they tend to, to, to look at, at, at as weight training. And when I mean weight training, I'm referring to where, where, where they're lifting, you know, barbells and, and, and such. Uh, but I, I don't think it's a necessity. I think some instances it works, and, and some instances it doesn't work. Thanks. Anyone else? Yeah. Toby, go ahead. Um, I want to um, 
also share a little bit of how we do it here in, in Liechtenstein. I mean, it's a, we have a Hungarian uh, age group coach for the younger kids. So it's, uh, it's, it's very much uh, on uh, flexibility and also medicine balls. And I found it more and more important to have Dryland program. It was not non-existent before 2016 here because the kids uh, come uh, with less uh, knowledge of, and less body awareness and more, more problems, orthopedic or movement-wise, because they don't play as much outside, at least that's what we have experienced. So it's a, it's a lot important that they learn the basic movements. And uh, once they get older, we established training um, in in a, in a gym, and we shared with a, with the alpine skiers. And they do that. What they do uh, is um, they do a lot with balance and core and uh, balancing over unstable uh, um, environments. And then that that has been really beneficial also for our older kids a little bit. So it's uh, we had to improvise a little bit. So we just took advantage of that. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Toby. I, I know probably it has to be pretty hard for you with such a small country. Yeah. <laughs> but, but awesome. Uh, anybody else? Come on. We have good coaches here. Uh, Gordon, you asked me a question, or you ask everybody a question. Do you think the development development of muscle through lifting creates muscle with a different physiological profile to muscle gain through resistant conditioning like medicine ball? Uh, you know, I I I can answer that, and somebody can. I, I believe so. You know, I think you have to be very careful with the with the, with the wave room, In my opinion. And what's important, what you do after the weight room in the water right away so you can adapt that, that muscle and, and whatever that work into the water. I think that's very important. I know a lot of people like to lift after swimming. We always lift before swimming just so I can use that session in the water to really mold the muscle into what I want to do and, and you know, transfer that into the best I can, to my knowledge, into, into swimming. You know, is that the right, what you were thinking about, Gordon? Yeah, just I guess when um, when the question was being answered earlier, you spoke about the the size of the muscle and and, and the the mechanical impingement sometimes getting in the way. Um, I guess my experience is more along the lines that the the physiology gets in the way. You know, like just getting bigger muscles doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the same physiological profile of the muscle that you've developed in the pool. Um, the specificity of, of muscular development through water movement or conditioning movement creates something that's very, very different. And that's why, you know, I think when we go right back to when we were saying we're preparing athletes to lift in college, it, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense that, that I guess that's what they do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's right. If, if they're creating musculature, that's not physiologically right for the task. Yeah, but Gordon, you have to think this. I have to prepare the, the, the if I was going to have a continuation with those guys yeah. instead of going to college, probably I wouldn't lift weights with most of them. Yeah. 
but that's not what they do when they're 18, when they go to college. It's out of my realm. You send them so guys, guys coming to you, would you prefer that they hadn't lifted? Because obviously that continuation to you would be like, very different. It doesn't matter. I just check them out. If I see yeah. a guy that is very developed and just likes to be in the weight room and is huge, and I see him swim and that doesn't appeal to me, it doesn't make me feel that I can work with him, I don't recruit that kid. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess I guess for coaches looking to put athletes into university programs, they probably should have a problem with that in terms of if, if they're creating a monsters that you're not going to want to recruit. Yeah, but some people don't think that way. And some people, many coaches just think about a fast time yeah. right now, you know, and they don't really, you know, you have a lot of recruiters that they, co- they, they recruit fast times. And, you, you know, you can get a lot of kids from Europe that have swum fast two years ago. But if you don't do your research, they send you time. 55, a girl, 55-5 in the 100 freestone. And you're all excited. And then you go and do some research and you find out that she did 55-5 two and a half years ago. And as of right now, she hasn't gone faster than 57-6. So you might have a problem there. Make sense? Yeah. But many coaches, many coaches in many programs, they just recruit a kid like that and then they put on Instagram or somewhere, wow, we have a great kid and that kid never swims fast ever again. You know, the, the good thing for the kid is that he gets a full scholarship or gets a lot of money, gets a free education and, and things like that. But, you know, as a coach, if you look for objectively for the people that are going to help the team to go fast, uh, higher and get better, I wouldn't recruit. Like, yeah. you know. um, I think for me has been when I was at Bolts preparing the kids to go to college. One of the things that I was very happy about that we were able to accomplish as a coach, coaching group is that we sent over 200 athletes in seven and a half years to many different programs, uh, distance-oriented, not distance-oriented, this and that. Even if you look at the four the guys that everybody knows, Caleb Dressel, Santa Condorelli, Joseph Schooling, and Ryan Murphy, Cal, Texas, uh, USC and Florida. Everybody thought that Caleb Dressel wasn't going, wasn't going to swim fast going to Florida because of distance oriented. And look at him. I think one of the things that we did very well was prepare the kids to understand that they were swimmers, they had their talent, that they could adapt to any situation. And that's the important thing. Thanks. Sergio, great. I appreciate you doing all these things, but I got to take off. So thank you. And hey, take care, everybody. Have a take good care. one. Hi, Sergio. I have a question. Hi, Elena. Um, do you ever have a problem uh, when swimmers lift weights before practice? Like, do you, ha- do you ever have problem of them going into the pool and being tired or not being able to give 100% in the pool, which is obviously more important for, for I th- them? I think the way we design our practice is like the days that they lift weights, we use power and speed. We do a lot of power and speed. So a lot of the sprinters or the people that go in the weight room or the... They like that type of work because it's different. We do a lot of power racks and this and that, and, and we don't have a big problems. Now, for sure, some days you have 
people more tired than others. And sometimes it's not because of the weight room, it's because of the stress in school, they had exams and this and that, and by the time they get to the pool, they're exhausted. So then you have to figure it out. But, but I haven't seen, you know, this past year, I, I don't remember kids not being able to train because of the weight room. Last year we had problems because the coach didn't really understand what we were doing in the dryland room. So some days they were doing double stuff and it was too much. So we had to change that. But I, I'm not, I, I, I like to, I like to go from the weight room into the water so we can, because the, the practice in the water is ta tailored for the weight room. So we can, you know, understand and transfer what they do over there into the water. So okay. you know, I don't, Thank I don't, you. yeah, you're welcome. I don't want to do weights so they're strong. That's, I don't believe in that. Like the weight program, the four weeks that I gave you, and this is to answer Gordon, one of you, the, the, if you do that of the, the, those four weeks, you don't hypertrophy whatsoever. There's no hypertrophy there. Right? Because when you do uh, one lift and you're using that isometric movement, you're not, you're recruiting a lot of uh, fast fibers, fast twitch fibers, but you're not breaking the fibers and you're not uh, you know, uh, hypertrophic. So the muscle of the athlete is really lean in a way. And it'll be lean and it'll be more explosive. Do I make sense? So, yeah. So, yeah. Thanks. Uh, Sergio, I had a question. Yes, sir. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, I was, uh, I've seen the Dutch where the Dutch, the Dutch and the uh, Italian teams, some of these guys have been able to complement the work that they're doing the workout in the, in the pool. So they take what they're doing in the dry land, uh, and what they're doing on the dry land, so let's say they're doing fast explosive work on the dry land, they would then translate that into fast uh, explosive work in the pool. Um, I've watched other teams like the Dutch where they were able to do opposite work. So if they were doing fast explosive work in dry land um, and then translate, like, say, basic endurance type stuff, depending on where they were in the season. Um, I just wanted to find out if any coaches have had any feedback on that or relation or experience with that type of work, opposite, opposite, or same, same? I, I'll tell you, I, I try to do, like I said, if I do something in the weight room, I try to transfer that into the water with the same time of work. So I don't do opposite, opposite. Uh, unless they're exhausted and I wanna just take that day off as a group, if they come out of the weight room, I might just swim easy recovery, give them choice, or just do something so their mind is clear for the next day. But that would be the only opposite op the only opposites that I would do. Make sense? But you try to target our power and speed on on Mondays and Fridays. The, the weight room, the, the weights, and the and the swimming are they have to complement. The dryland, the same thing. When we do dryland in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, from the dryland room, we don't swim aerobically. We just do a lot of lactic work, short and fast, where we work on the underwaters, we work on the turns, where we work on just from the start. Just try to complement what we've done in the in the weight room and in the weight room in the dryland room. If you've done one hour of medicine ball, boxing, 
you know, 40 pros, that's a very aerobic threshold oriented type of work. So it's kind of you're finishing the practice with a little bit of a lactic and stuff to complement. Make sense? No, no one else has an, a thought about any of this? Hey, Jason, you're looking yeah. at a phone, but you're not texting me. You don't have anything to say about this? Ah, okay. He's just busy. I have a question. I actually did just text you. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Audrey, go ahead. Okay, so, um, so you know how I started um, with you when I was 12 years old? Yeah, that was, that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, but I did the same things as everyone else, and I think I started lifting when I was 13 or 14 with you. That was the, yeah, the last year that I was there, that we did a little yeah. bit of lifting. Do you have any regrets? Because no. I know everyone is talking about how, like, they started lifting at 16, 22, and I was a lot younger than that. No, I don't think so. I think we, we tried to, we didn't do anything hard with a little bit of circuit training and trying to show people how to lift. But, you know, we had a lot of seniors around that time, too, that were going to go to college. So I don't, you know, it was, I think one of the things that I don't think, I would kept going every year with weights because that's not what I believe, you know, but, you know, sometimes maybe every cycle that when you have more seniors or not, maybe I do a little bit more, but you know, I don't regret it. Okay. Got it. Well, I mean, in general, like, I don't know if I will run into this in like my coaching career, but if I ever like, what do you do with someone who is, that much younger than everyone else, but is still part of, like, I mean, I swam, I was swimming with like Ryan Murphy and Joseph School. How do you deal with that? Well, like you just need to think about the relationship that you and me had, you know, how I was trying to help you out in a different way, just because of different things. You were, you, you were going to go to college when you were 14 years old, you know, you were that, you know, that advanced with, with your school. So, and you were a pretty fast swimmer too. So we, would, but I tried to save you of many things too. And we talk a lot and we, we, we work more on the, on the adaptation of being 12. And if you went to college at the age of 14, 15, how that was going to be and, you know, and, and all that stuff. And, and you have a very particular situation that we work with that could probably you have a lot of insight if you think about it, of what happened with you and how you can apply that to people. Make sense? Yeah. So, and I don't regret coaching you at 12. It was awesome. I have, you, you know, sometimes, you know, I remember, I remember this. I don't know if you remember one time we were in long, this was a very funny thing. We were in long course because, you know, all these guys like Ryan Murphy and all these, they thought they were gods. And um, Ryan was a captain in the team and he was coming back from a set. And I found out that his brother was chosen captain at, um, at Notre Dame. And I told Ryan, I said, hey, Ryan, uh, congratulations. Uh, tell your brother congratulations for being captain. And you turn around and you told him, well, if I would have been here last year, you, I would have not voted for you because you're a horrible captain. <laughs> And, you know, and, and that was like very impressive, but you, you, you didn't tell her, you didn't tell him in front of everybody, but you told him to his face and poor Ryan 
<laughs> didn't know what to say. He had all read this big guy, top in the world, and by a, was told by a 12-year-old kid that you're not that good as a character. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> okay. All right, let's talk about something else, guys. Come on. Nobody? All right, let's change subjects. <laughs>